0: Hey everyone, my name is Mike Estefan, and I thank you for joining me today on this month's Deep Dive episode on the EM Clerkship Podcast. This month, we're going to be talking about diabetic ketoacidosis, or DKA for short. Before we begin, just a quick word from our sponsors at Pearson Rabbits Insurance. Pearson Rabbits is my personal disability insurance broker. As somebody with no business or financial background and somebody who has never even read about insurance before, they were able to explain every step of the process and kind of explain what types are good, what, what's bad, what to look out for, and put it in a language that you know somebody like me with no prior experience could understand. And that is something that I really liked about working with Pearson Rabbits. They will make the process as easy and straightforward for you as possible. Please check out Pearson Rabbits at www.pearsonrabbits.com and schedule a consultation with them today. Now, back to our episode. We're going to start by talking about the definition of diabetic ketoacidosis and how we diagnose this in the ED. After that, the bulk of this episode is going to be talking about the management of DKA. So. The definition of DKA is literally in the name. Diabetic, meaning hyperglycemia. Keto, meaning ketosis, the presence of ketone bodies in the blood. And acidosis, uh, a low bicarb. Now, this can get a little tricky. It's not exactly 100% of the time straightforward. For example, there is an entity called euglycemic DKA. It's basically DKA, but you have a normal or only slightly elevated blood glucose. And where we see this often is in patients taking SGLT2 inhibitors. So euglycemic DKA is definitely something to keep an eye out for. The second kind of pathology that can be confusing with DKA is alcoholic ketoacidosis and you know these patients present similarly they're acidotic they've got ketones with an anion gap acidosis but typically they're going to have a significant history of alcohol abuse and they're going to be hypo or low normal on their blood glucose. Now as far as the workup for DKA the first thing you have to do is actually work up diabetic ketoacidosis so a basic metabolic panel gets you halfway there you'll get the blood glucose you'll get the anion gap you'll get the bicarb and then we're going to need to prove evidence of ketones which can either be done through a beta-hydroxybutyrate level which is the predominant ketone produced in dka or a urinalysis showing positive ketones and finally we typically get a venous blood gas to see the patient's ph Seems straightforward, right? Well, not all the time. One thing that is commonly missed, especially among new residents, is figuring out why the patient went into diabetic ketoacidosis. Guys, I cannot stress how important this is. The why of the DKA. Yes, diagnosing DKA is super easy, but why do they have DKA? Usually the most common reason is... Lack of insulin. So they ran out of their insulin or they haven't been compliant with their insulin. However, you need to evaluate for ongoing pathology that has triggered the DKA. Any sort of disease process that causes a metabolic stress to the body can put a patient with a history of diabetes into DKA. Some notable cases that I have seen in my career so far. I have seen a patient coming in with DKA, and we found a STEMI on their EKG. I've seen COVID push people into DKA. I've seen acute cholecystitis push people into DKA. I've seen sepsis push people into DKA. Most of the time, it's going to be insulin noncompliance, but especially in older folks, look for other inciting causes of DKA. Now, in pediatrics, a lot of the time, patients present in DKA because they have undiagnosed diabetes. And this represents a whole kind of different set of diagnostics, um, especially because we don't routinely get blood work on kids, you know, especially younger kids. So what I would say here is that if you have a child that comes to the ER with vomiting, I always will check an AccuCheck on this kid. Number one, to make sure that you know they're not hypoglycemic because they've been vomiting so much, but number two, to make sure that this isn't DKA. Patients with DKA usually present with very nonspecific vomiting and generalized diffuse abdominal pain. They'll often have the polys, meaning polyuria, polydipsia, and occasionally they'll present with shortness of breath as in Maddie's case. Now, the important thing to note here is that they will have clear lungs usually. And whenever I see somebody coming in with shortness of breath and they're tachypnic with clear lungs, you know, like I said in Maddie's case, I'm always thinking about DKA or other causes of acidosis, and I'm always thinking about pulmonary embolism. All right, now to get to the meat of the episode, the management of DKA. So I'm going to break this down into three separate sections to make this a little more digestible. We'll first talk about the management of the ketoacidosis, then we'll talk about management of the electrolyte abnormalities that are associated with DKA, and then finally we'll talk about the management of the patient's respiratory status for patients in severe DKA. So as far as the management of the ketoacidosis goes, the treatment for DKA is insulin right? Because it's the deficiency of insulin that leads to diabetic ketoacidosis. Typically, it's an insulin drip. Um, Some places I've worked have given a bolus with the drip. Some places, it's just the drip. It depends on your hospital. But insulin is the mainstay of management here. Now, as we discovered in the case, this is a little nuanced. Because what does insulin do? It drives potassium into the cell. We'll talk more about the management of the electrolyte abnormalities in a minute, but with regards to the insulin drip, typically we cannot start the insulin drip if the patient is hypokalemic, meaning if they have a K of about 3.5 or lower. The exact potassium level for which you can start insulin just depends on your hospital guidelines, but insulin drip is the mainstay of treatment of the ketoacidosis. Now let's briefly talk about a bicarb drip. So there is little to no evidence showing that a bicarbonate drip is useful in the treatment of diabetic ketoacidosis. However, what I will say is in most places that I've practiced and my own current practice is that if the patient is critically acidotic or acidemic, I'm sorry, so they have a pH of seven or less than seven, typically I'm starting a bicarb drip. Again, this is kind of an evidence-free zone, but this is what a lot of practicing physicians do. You can make a bicarb drip um, two different ways. The classic way, which I don't really use for DKA, is three amps of bicarb in one liter of D5W. The reason being, if they're hyperglycemic, I don't want to be giving them more sugar. But that's the classic bicarb drip we order for most other etiologies. In DKA, what you can do is one and a half amps of bicarb in one liter of half normal saline. And finally, I am volume resuscitating these patients. They are often two, three, four liters volume depleted when they arrive in the ER. And they need significant volume. I typically go with normal saline to start my first liter because the normal saline bags are available in the room typically. However, after that, I switch over to lactated ringers, just because there have been a couple studies showing that high volumes of normal saline can lead to a hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis. Okay, so in summary, management of ketoacidosis is an insulin drip but we need the potassium first before we can start it. Volume resuscitation, usually normal saline followed by lactated ringers. And finally, for the critically ill, I personally will do a bicarbonate drip, and many other physicians do, although with the disclaimer that there is not a lot of evidence supporting this. Alright, number two, management of the electrolyte abnormalities associated with DKA. So let's talk about the first obvious abnormality that we will see when we get that BMP back. It's going to be the sodium, usually. The reason being is we get kind of a pseudo-hyponatremia a lot of the time uh, because of high glucose levels, and you need to correct the sodium value for that glucose level. The formula or trick I use is every 100 points that the glucose is above its normal value, which is about 100, you add 1.6 to the sodium. So, for example, if a patient were to come in with a glucose of 1100, that is 1000 higher than normal, so 10 times 100 higher than normal, and I'm gonna multiply that 10 by 1.6 to get 16. So I will add 16 to that patient's measured sodium to obtain what their sodium actually is. Most of the time, this will correct well, but if the patient is hypernatremic, it likely means that they're just even more dehydrated than you think, and they're going to need more volume. Really, the only reason I point this out is so that the low sodium does not alarm you when you get that BMP back. Remember, you have to correct for the glucose. So let's talk about the potassium now. Patients with DKA often come in hypokalemic because of all the vomiting they've been doing, but sometimes they come in hyperkalemic because of the severe acidosis causing potassium shifting. So their potassium is overall total volume depleted, however extracellularly because of shifting, they're hyperkalemic. Again, here, management depends on hospital guidelines, but if their potassium is 5 or greater, normally I'm not supplementing, If it's between 3.5 and 5, I'm adding potassium to their fluids while they're getting insulin. And if the potassium is less than 3.5, they need their potassium to be repleted before starting an insulin drip. The reason we don't like hypokalemia is because it leads to dysrhythmias. And the most feared dysrhythmia is V-fib, okay? Ventricular dysrhythmias. So we do not like hypokalemia. Now, that's all kind of at the med student level. We know we need to replete the potassium, but let's bring this up to the resident level. How do we replete potassium? So we often will do it PO and IV, at least I do personally. Now, PO, usually the most you can give at once is about 40 equivalents. Sometimes you can do 60 or 80, again, depending on hospital guidelines, but 40 is a safe number to do PO and then IV. So the problem with IV potassium is you're limited by the rate which you can administer it. So peripherally, you can typically do 10 milliequivalents per hour. And again, depending on hospital guidelines, they may allow you to give 10 per hour per IV. So if you have an IV in each arm, you can give 20 per hour. Generally, if you have a central line, you can double the rate. So you can give 20 per hour through a central line. Now, the reason we can't give potassium faster than this is twofold. Number one, it tends to burn and patients don't tolerate high rates of potassium through peripheral lines. But number two, and most importantly, if we replete too quickly, there is a risk of cardiac arrest. And I was doing some research as to why this happens because usually the kidneys do a great job at regulating our total body potassium. However, by introducing too much potassium too quickly, it can accumulate extracellularly before it gets shifted and filtered by the kidneys, and it can lead to a hyperkalemic cardiac arrest. So this is kind of the worst nightmare most feared patient is somebody who comes in with critical diabetic ketoacidosis you know their ph is too low to read and you get that potassium back and it's like 2.4 and you cannot start that insulin drip with that potassium at 2.4 but you know they're going to tire out and they can't hold on for you to replete that potassium so That kind of brings us into our next topic, the management of the respiratory status of the patient with DKA. So patients with DKA, obviously, have a metabolic acidosis going on. And when it comes to metabolic acidosis, the body compensates rather quickly with a respiratory alkalosis, a.k.a. tachypnea. Now, as I kind of briefly discussed on the episode, there are physiologic limits to compensation. You can only ventilate so much and blow your CO2 down so much. And you'll see different numbers quoted anywhere, but the one I see quoted the most is about eight to 10 for most people, being the lowest you can blow your CO2 down to. Now, for young patients, they can typically sustain this respiratory effort for quite some time. But as we get older and our muscles atrophy, you're not gonna be able to sustain that kind of respiratory effort for long. So for patients who you are worried about tiring out, you can augment their respiratory effort with BiPAP. And specifically what we're trying to do here is reduce the work of breathing. And the way we do that is typically by having what I call a large delta pressure, meaning we have a high IPAP, or inspiratory positive airway pressure, and a low EPAP, or expiratory positive airway pressure, something like 15 over five. Now, this can buy you some time either to start the treatment and get the treatment working to reduce the acidosis and reduce the need for respiratory compensation, or it can buy you time to replete that low potassium and allow you to start the insulin drip. Now, all this talk on the possibility of respiratory failure begs the question, why not just intubate the patient? And there are three good reasons not to intubate your diabetic ketoacidotic patient unless absolutely necessary. The first reason is apnea. So what happens when you perform RSI? You paralyze that patient. They stop breathing. Now, if that patient was already compensating maximally via the respirations and you stop them from breathing their PCO2 is going to skyrocket, and their pH is going to plummet. Patients often will code as soon as they go apneic from intubation. So, apnea is the main reason we initially avoid intubation. However, once a patient is intubated, there are two other reasons why they cannot be ventilated as somebody who is awake and breathing spontaneously. In other words, the maximum minute ventilation that you can obtain while on a ventilator is not nearly as high as the maximum minute ventilation that you can obtain through normal physiologic breathing. The first reason for that has to do with exhalation. So imagine breathing 40 to 50 times a minute. In that circumstance, Exhalation is an active process. You are using your respiratory muscles and your accessory muscles to force air out quicker in order for you to take another breath. However, when you are ventilated, exhalation is 100% a passive process. There is no way to force the air out of your lungs. And thus the expiratory time on a vent is longer than it is when you are breathing with normal physiologic respirations. The second reason has to do with airflow. So throw back to med school. Airflow is proportional to the radius of the tube to the fourth power. So imagine your entire trachea being open versus a small 7-0 endotracheal tube. Big difference there. If you cut the radius of your breathing tube in half, it reduces flow 16-fold using that formula. So kind of imagine breathing through a boba straw versus a coffee stir straw. That's the difference here. For both of these reasons, you simply cannot obtain the same high minute ventilation on a ventilator as you can physiologically. And if you try to, you're going to develop something called breath stacking, which if not recognized, will kill the patient imminently. Breath stacking is essentially you not exhaling all the way in between ventilated breaths. And so each subsequent ventilated breath pushes more and more and more air into your lungs. And it ends up creating a physiology very similar to a tension pneumothorax because you've got so much positive pressure stuck in your chest that it collapses your SVC, which then reduces preload to your heart, which causes you to go into shock specifically an obstructive shock. So due to both these reasons, typically the highest rate you can set on a ventilator is about 30 to 32 for most people before you start breath stacking. And some people won't even be able to tolerate that. Compare that to physiologic breathing where you can easily obtain rates of 40, 50, 60. So again, long story short, we want to avoid intubation at all costs. However, sometimes there are circumstances where you have to intubate. If the patient is becoming altered and cannot tolerate positive pressure ventilation, you know, altered mental status is a contraindication for CPAP or BiPAP. Or if the patient is going to overt respiratory failure, if their respiratory rate is slowing down, if they're tiring out, then you're stuck and you're going to have to take their airway. Now, I have yet to have to intubate a critically ill DKA patient. However, if I were to do it, there are basically two ways you can go about this. The first way, which if you have experience doing this is probably the best way, would be an awake intubation. Describing the techniques of an awake intubation could be a whole other episode on its own, but very briefly, you're gonna give a bunch of premedications to allow this to happen. So you're gonna give Zofran to decrease the gag reflex. You're going to give glycopyrrolate to reduce secretions. You're gonna to topicalize with lots of lidocaine. So you're gonna use an atomizer to spray the oropharynx with lidocaine. You can put a bunch of viscous lidocaine on a tongue depressor and smear it all over the base of the tongue. You can nebulize lidocaine. However, you can get it in there, you need to anesthetize the entire airway. After that, you dissociate the patient with ketamine and then you use your video laryngoscope to get a view of the cords. Now, sometimes you can pass the tube while they're breathing, sometimes it's a little difficult to, so at that point, you could push the paralytic and just pass the tube with minimal apneic time. Now, If you're not experienced with awake intubations or you've never done one, then trying this for the first time on such a critically ill patient probably isn't the best idea. So for a lot of people, doing plain old RSI is going to be the fastest way of getting that tube in. If you're going to perform RSI here, one thing to consider is pushing a couple amps of bicarb before you paralyze the patient, just to buy you possible seconds to minutes. Again, the data for bicarbonate pushes, bicarbonate drips is poor, kind of all around, with the exception of hyperchloremic non-anion gap metabolic acidosis. So you're kind of in an evidence-free zone. A lot of people do this. I would do this, but again... Not a lot of data to support the bicarb. Okay, that's all I got for you guys today. That was a lot. Let's review it real quick. So briefly, DKA, the patient is hyperglycemic, they're acidotic, and they have ketones in their blood. Do not forget to look for the inciting factor that led to the diabetic ketoacidosis. Again, it's most often going to be insulin noncompliance, but you know you got to keep your eyes out for STEMIs, for sepsis, for surgical abdomens, etc., Management of DKA split into three different categories. First, the management of the ketoacidosis, which we treat with an insulin drip. You can consider a bicarb drip for critical acidosis, but the evidence is limited. The second facet of treatment is management of the electrolyte abnormalities. For sodium, don't forget to correct the sodium based on the glucose before addressing it. For potassium, remember that we cannot start that insulin drip if the patient is hypokalemic. Hypokalemia can lead to ventricular dysrhythmias, which is bad news bears. Anyone who's hypokalemic, you are gonna to wanna to replete their potassium. You can do this via PO and IV simultaneously, usually 40 to 60 PO, and then you can give 10 equivalents per hour through a peripheral line or 20 per hour through a central line. Again, this is hospital and institutionally dependent, so check your hospital guideline. And finally, management of the respiratory status in the patient with DKA. Keep in mind the physiologic limits of respiratory compensation and keep an eye out for when the patient begins to tire out. Please do not be shy about using BiPAP to augment their respiratory status buy you time by reducing their work of breathing. Here, we typically want a high IPAP and a low EPAP. So something like 12 over five, 15 over five is pretty good. We want to avoid intubation at all costs. Number one, because of the risk of worsening acidosis with apnea, and number two, because we simply cannot ventilate the intubated patient as well as a not intubated patient. If you have to intubate the patient due to altered mental status or due to respiratory failure, consider an awake intubation if you're skilled at it, or otherwise just go with RSI and consider using bicarb here. But, again, evidence is poor. Once they're intubated, your goal is to obtain the highest minute ventilation that is possible, while avoiding breath stacking. I'm sorry guys, now that I'm looking at the time, this is going to be a pretty long one. This is pretty detailed too. I hope I didn't put anyone to sleep. All this information is super high yield clinically when you have a really sick patient with DKA. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to email me, Mike at emclerkship.com. Until next month, keep working hard, keep studying, and be sure to enjoy your shift.